True Crime Live is back. So initially, we were traveling around Dallas doing live shows. My friends Eric from True Consequences, Winnie and Melissa from Colts Crimes and Cabernet. And we decided, hey, let's get a bunch more podcasters together and head to Atlanta. So on December 3rd, we are going to be in Atlanta doing a live show. There's going to be tickets for sale for this particular event. I'll put the link in the show notes, but you can get some percentage off by using the code podcaster at checkout. The space is very limited. So if you are in the Atlanta area around that time, please join us. Explicit content is found in this episode. So listener discretion is advised. A note for this episode. This episode contains mentions of suicide and domestic violence. Please prioritize your well-being over listening. If you or someone you know is in danger of suicidal ideation or action, please consider calling the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Welcome back to True Crime Cases with Lainey. I'm your host, Lainey. In 1982, 33-year-old Lynette Dawson was living the dream with her husband, 34-year-old Christopher Michael Dawson. They had two young daughters, aged two and four, and lived in a beautiful home in Bayview, located in Sydney, Australia. Chris was an attractive man with thick, dirty blonde hair, was a high school gym teacher, and a former rugby player. Lynette, who went by Lynn, was a nurse and was gorgeous with long blonde hair and a killer smile. Together, Chris and Lynn looked like a live-action Ken and Barbie, and their relationship looked like a fairy tale. They were high school sweethearts, building a successful life together. But looks can be deceiving. And on a Friday night in January of 1982, Lynn disappeared, never to be seen again. Not only that, it took Chris six weeks to report his missing wife. Lynn hasn't been seen since the day she disappeared, and her body has never been found. Local authorities did a terrible job of investigating Lynn's case. Before Lynn's disappearance, Chris was unfaithful, having an ongoing relationship with their family babysitter, a 16-year-old young woman who we'll call J.C. The 18-year age gap between the two wasn't the only thing to be wary of. J.C. also moved into the Dawson family home with Chris and his daughters only two days after Lynn vanished, several weeks before Chris reported Lynn missing. Despite the suspicious circumstances, authorities simply chalked up Lynn's disappearance to her being a runaway mother. But Lynn's friends and family knew that wasn't what happened. Lynn would never have abandoned her children. Lynn's disappearance became a cold case and remained unsolved for 40 years, until in May of 2018, an Australian news company released a new podcast entitled The Teacher's Pet. Hosted by award-winning reporter Hedley Thomas, the podcast ran for 16 episodes, with each episode detailing the case of Lynette Dawson's mysterious disappearance. Today, the podcast has over 60 million downloads and definitely some of those came from me. Due to the stellar investigative journalism in the Teacher's Pet podcast, Lynette Dawson's case was reopened. The result of this was that 74-year-old Chris Dawson was arrested for murdering his former wife four decades ago. According to the Washington Post, prosecutors argued that Chris killed Lynn to continue his relationship with the babysitter, J.C., 
On Tuesday, August 30, 2022, after a two-month trial and five hours of jury deliberation, Chris was found guilty. He has not been sentenced yet and vehemently denies killing Lynn. His lawyer confirmed that they will appeal the conviction. Sadly, Lynn Dawson's case isn't the first time this has happened. A beloved wife who mysteriously disappeared, a podcast that took notice, and a suspicious husband who wasn't telling the whole story. But this time, you'll never guess how it ends. Today, we cover the case of Emily Noble. Okay, on to the show. As we cover Emily's case, we'll point out information that Marissa Jones, host of The Vanish Podcast, worked hard to get. If you haven't heard of it, The Vanish Podcast is a true crime podcast that focuses on missing persons cases, and I would strongly recommend that you take the time to listen to episodes 314 and 315 to hear exclusive interviews from Emily Noble's friends, family, and husband. Emily Ann Noble was born on May 24, 1968, to her father, Lester Dean, and her mother, Ruth Ann. She had at least one sister and one brother. Emily spent most of her life in Westerville, Ohio, which crosses two counties in central Ohio, Franklin County and Delaware County. Westerville has a population of around 40,000 and is a suburb of the state's capital, Columbus, Ohio, which is only 10 miles away. Westerville's city website claims it's a safe community, and for central Ohio, it is. The response time for emergency services is less than four minutes, compared to Columbus's response time of 10 minutes, which is pretty impressive. But the crime rate in Westerville isn't great, since according to the FBI crime statistics, Westerville is only safer than 31% of other U.S. cities. For comparison, Columbus is one safer than 9%, so Westerville isn't bad. It's best described as a standard Midwest suburb with beautiful parks and trails to explore. There's even a newer area called Uptown where people can shop, eat, and attend exciting events. Emily knew Westerville inside and out. She went to school at Westerville North High School and attended local art shows and festivals. Emily was an involved and beloved member of the local Westerville community. Emily's friends said she cared about everybody, and as a result of Emily's kindness, people were drawn to her. Those closest to Emily described her as unique, strong, genuine, courageous, and confident. Her passions included helping the elderly, jogging, hiking, swimming, and photography. She was an incredibly petite woman, around 100 pounds soaking wet, with dark hair and bright brown eyes. In an interview with The Vanish Podcast, Emily's sister-in-law Dawn described Emily. The two had known each other from a very young age, and Dawn said Emily was a reserved private woman. She was picky about who she allowed into her life. As a woman of few words, her words were very meaningful. So when Emily spoke, people listened. While Emily survived high school and college, she flourished as an adult. As Dawn said, quote, Emily came into her own after college. She knew what she wanted in her life. In college, Emily obtained a liberal arts degree. Among other things, she was eager to use her education to help nonprofits. 
Since at least 2008, Emily had also worked for the state of Ohio's Medicaid Department and the Department of Jobs and Family Services. Dawn told the Vanish podcast that Emily's first marriage was a shock. Emily had such an independent spirit that it was difficult to imagine her with a lifelong partner. But Dawn discovered that Emily's new husband, a musician named Mark, was a good match for Emily. In many ways, Emily and Mark were similar people. They were private, they appreciated music, and they loved each other deeply. Emily's life was filled with a lot of tragedy. In the 90s, she had friends who died from the AIDS epidemic. Then, in 2011, Emily's husband Mark was struggling with depression, with his friends describing him as troubled. According to the Vanish podcast's exclusive interview with Mark's friend Fred, Mark called 911 and informed the operator there would be a body in an alley. Mark left a note, then he went to that alley and shot himself. According to friends, Mark's mother had died from suicide as well when he was younger. Later, Emily was still grieving the loss of her husband when her father had a bad fall and hit his head hard. Her father never recovered and passed away from related injuries. Less than a year later, Emily's mother died unexpectedly in a car accident. She had fallen asleep at the wheel. Dawn told the Vanish podcast that Emily was incredibly vulnerable after the deaths of her husband, father, and mother. The unexpected nature of her husband and mother's deaths were especially traumatizing, and Emily rarely spoke about Mark's death. But even though Emily grieved, she did not lose her giving spirit. Suzanne Cavanaugh, who goes by Sue, told the Vanish podcast about when she met Emily in 2016. Sue had been down on her luck, and Emily sent money to help her get back on her feet. At the time, the two women barely knew each other. But still, Emily was eager to help. Emily had received the money as an inheritance from her mother's death and was glad to see it go toward helping Sue. When Sue was later in a better financial position, she later took Emily to a The Price is Right live show. Following that, the two were very close friends who attended many shows together. Emily also inherited a condo from her mother. In 2018, while living at this condo, Emily met her best friend, Celeste Grown, who lived nearby. The two quickly hit it off and traveled together in 2020 to Belize in Central America. A trip to the forests of Belize was right up Emily's alley. One of her most defining traits was her love of nature. She was especially fond of sunsets, the moon, and gardening. As an earthy woman, Emily was known to forage for edible herbs and flowers in the woods near her home. According to the Vanish podcast, Emily would have liked to never eat grocery store food. She wanted to live off the land. A few years earlier, in December of 2015, 48-year-old Emily met a man on an online dating website. This was 45-year-old Matthew Moore, who went by Matt. He was born on January 29, 1971, in Sacramento, California. In 2000, Matt had married a woman named Lisa Peterson, and together they had two sons, Paxton and Joey. Paxton died when he was very young due to an unknown medical reason, and by 2015, Matt lived in Vegas with his second son, Joey. Matt and Emily's relationship had a rocky start. They hit it off immediately, but after one date, things turned south. Matt had traveled to Ohio to see Emily, but their relationship ended without warning when he returned to Las Vegas and ghosted Emily. 
According to the Vanish podcast interview with Emily's sister-in-law, Dawn, this was near the time Emily's dad died. Friends were concerned when Emily and Matt's relationship began to rekindle sometime later. They felt Emily wasn't being treated well since Matt had ghosted her right when her father passed. But Emily felt that Matt's actions were justified and said Matt needed to go back to Las Vegas for his son. In Matt's interview with the Vanish podcast, in Matt's interview with the Vanish podcast, he confirmed that he had returned to Las Vegas for his son, Joey's well-being. Just a note here. Throughout Emily's case, there are continuous references to Joey being ill, but it's unclear what exactly his illness was. When Matt and Emily began speaking again, he moved himself and Joey to Ohio because Matt believed Ohio could provide better academic resources for Joey. Our research shows that Matt and his son moved into Emily's condo. Matt and Emily dated for approximately one year, and by late August of 2018, they were married. Matt was now a full-time stay-at-home dad. From the beginning, Emily and Matt's marriage gave Emily's friend a bad feeling. According to the Vanish podcast, Emily told Sue they married to get Joey on her health insurance. Sue explained that Matt didn't believe doctors could help his son, which struck Sue as strange since Emily said the two tied the knot for health insurance purposes, presumably so Joey could see a doctor. Another weird thing Sue noticed was that Matt wore the wedding band of Emily's deceased husband, Mark, telling the podcast that she suspected Emily must have had to remove the ring from Mark's body. Emily also still wore her wedding ring from her marriage with Mark. Sue approached Emily with her concerns about Matt, but Emily wouldn't listen. Emily made excuses for Matt, telling Sue that Matt had suffered a brain injury from a bad car accident when he was 19 which affected his mood and behavior. But Sue wasn't the only one who noticed Matt's unsettling behavior. Emily's friend Jeff also spoke to the Vanish podcast and explained that Emily was burdened with taking care of the home, finances, and her stepson Joey. Jeff explained that Matt was a dominating force known to push Emily's friends out of her life. On the podcast, friends of Emily's described Matt as extremely disheveled, and said he looked like he needed a shower and a fresh pair of clothes. They also said Matt was very possessive of Emily's time. Unlike Emily's first husband, Mark, Matt was Emily's complete opposite. Where Emily was forgiving and warm, Matt was critical and bullheaded. While Emily was a peacemaker, Matt was very argumentative, and he was even known to push social boundaries on hot-button topics like politics. According to court documents, Sue saw bruises on Emily's arms and believed that Matt had caused the bruising. When Sue raised her concerns to Emily, Emily ended the friendship, telling Sue that she felt she was being negative. That being said, it's important to note that there is no recorded evidence that Matt abused Emily. Jeff observed that Emily made an odd comment about Matt at dinner, telling the Vanish podcast that Emily said, quote, if anything happens to me, Matt will be taken care of. Emily was likely referencing finances. We can assume she meant life insurance, and Jeff felt that it was bizarre to bring up this statement. Why would Matt care if he benefited after Emily's death? However, it should be said that some of Emily's friends advocated for Matt, saying he was a really nice guy. 
Brandy's Inc. was yet another close friend of Emily's. They'd known each other for almost 20 years, and Brandy described Emily as a beautiful person who loved life. She said Emily was resilient, strong, and graceful. In July of 2019, Emily and Brandy took a trip to Hocking Hills State Park, a 90-minute drive from Westerville, Ohio. But the trip ended unexpectedly when Matt texted Emily to tell her that Joey, her 17-year-old stepson, had completed suicide. In a park near Emily and Matt's condo, Joey had hung himself with an extension cord. This news came as a shock to Joey's friends and family. While Joey had some behavioral issues at school, he was well-regarded as a nice young man. According to Joey's friend, Cassidy, who spoke with the Vanish podcast, he was a genuine, honest, emo kid who loved everybody, describing him as one of the brightest souls she'd ever met. Joey loved to sing and play guitar, and according to Cassidy, even dreamed of being a performer one day. Joey's death seemed out of place to Cassidy. Before he died, Joey had asked Cassidy to draw him a tattoo, which he intended to get done on his 18th birthday. He died on July 1st, 2019, and his 18th birthday would have been just a few weeks later on July 23rd. Cassidy found it hard to believe Joey would complete suicide with these plans, since he clearly had something to look forward to. Other sources agreed that Joey seemed to be at a good point in his life. He had friends and a car. They didn't understand what could have triggered his suicide. Cassidy also shared that Joey's relationship with his father was terrible. Although Joey got along with Emily, he would often couch surf rather than stay with Emily and Matt in the condo. Sue, Emily's friend, said that before Joey's death, Matthew would joke that he felt Joey was turning out poorly. Instead of parenting Joey, Matt wanted to try being a dad again by adopting a baby Ethiopian girl. Other friends of Emily's told the Vanish podcast that Matt spoke horribly to Joey, saying things like, why don't you just kill yourself? Joey's death was immediately ruled a suicide without an autopsy or further investigation, and Matt had Joey's remains cremated immediately following the coroner's report. Joey's death affected Emily deeply. She'd only known Joey for a year and a half, but the two had grown incredibly close since Emily was in charge of Joey's caretaking, despite Matt's full-time job as a stay-at-home dad. Friends told The Vanish that Matt blamed Emily for Joey's death, since Emily had been traveling with her friend that weekend. Following Joey's suicide, Matt remained unemployed and drank excessively. He didn't seek counseling or make attempts to get better, and it was later discovered that Matt also abused drugs, even growing illegal mushrooms in Joey's bedroom closet. Following Joey's death, Emily also struggled, but she showed hope in a way Matt did not. She was working out, going to therapy, preparing to return to work, and according to sources on the Vanish podcast, there were rumors that Emily was thinking about leaving Matt. A year passed following Joey's death. The morning of Emily's 52nd birthday was on Sunday, May 24, 2020. It was Memorial Day weekend, and she and Matt had a bunch of exciting activities planned. First, they drove almost two hours to Booktail, Ohio, to collect water from an underwater spring. Then they visited Westerfield's Field of Heroes. Next, they had a picnic in the park, and finally, they ended Emily's birthday by going to several bars in the Westerville Uptown District, 
taking a selfie at the restaurant, Coble Grill. While in Uptown, Emily and Matt saw several friends, including Emily's best friend, Celeste Grone, who corroborated their location. The mood was especially exciting since the restaurants were only recently opened after COVID-related shutdowns. According to Celeste's interview with Marissa from The Vanished, the Friday before Emily's birthday, she and Celeste had hung out. They explored the wooded area near Emily's home, foraging for edible weeds. Emily had a book that helped them identify what they could eat, so they found all sorts of native plants to munch on. The next day, Emily texted Celeste to make sure she wasn't sick from their weed-eating adventures, and on Sunday, it was Emily's birthday. Early in the morning, Celeste texted her happy birthday, and Emily responded. Phone records indicated that Emily stopped using her phone at 6 p.m. on May 24th. Family and friends remarked that this was odd, since Emily was always on her phone. Matt's phone, however, continued to be used, evident in phone logs when, at 7.30 p.m. on the 24th, Matt called a friend. According to Matt, via court documents and the Vanish podcast, he and Emily went to bed together on the evening of her birthday. At some point in the night, Matt awoke and went to the bathroom. Rather than getting back in bed with Emily, he went to sleep in the guest bedroom, explaining that he didn't want to wake her. The next morning, on Monday, May 25th, Matt woke up around 10 a.m. and realized Emily wasn't home, but she had left her car keys, wallet, and her cell phone at their condo. At this point, Matt called Celeste from Emily's phone and asked if Celeste knew where Emily was, indicating they had an event to get to. Matt said that Emily never returned from her morning walk, which he assumed was where she had gone. Confused, Celeste urged Matt to call the police, which Matt claimed he hadn't done yet because he thought he had to wait 24 hours to report a missing person. Celeste then confirmed that Matt should call the police immediately, which he did. Officer Robert Hollis of the Westerville Police Department responded to Matt's call about Emily's missing person status. Body cam footage shows him walking through Matt and Emily's home and looking through their vehicles. In the footage, you could see the point when Celeste arrived at Matt and Emily's condo. Initially, Matt assumed Celeste was Emily and seemed relieved that Emily had arrived home. But it quickly became apparent that it was Celeste, not Emily, who was in Celeste's car. This detail becomes important later. In her interview with the Vanish podcast, Celeste said that she went to Matt and Emily's condo, and as soon as she arrived, she ran down the path she and Emily had taken to forage only a few days earlier. Her concern was that Emily had fallen and couldn't return home, but Emily wasn't there. When Celeste returned to the condo, the police were in the throes of the investigation. Police used cadaver dogs, hound dogs, drones, divers, and vans to try and find Emily. Matt had also contacted Emily's family to tell them she was missing, and both her family and the community swiftly responded to Emily's disappearance. There were manhunts, search parties, and vigils. Emily's friends were out of their minds with worry as they helped with the search efforts, even kayaking on a nearby water source and walking through a neighboring nursing home on the slightest chance that some crazed elderly person had kidnapped Emily. According to Emily's friend Jeff on the Vanish podcast, Emily had so many friends that her disappearance was felt across the entire Westerville community. 
and a great many people were concerned for her safety. Jeff explained, quote, It's a rare thing for people to go missing in Westerville. Since it was an upper-middle-income area, the public reaction was immense because people knew who Emily was. Another friend, Brandy, said, The whole community is traumatized by her loss. I miss my friend. She was like my sister. Initially, Matt was eager to help local law enforcement in their pursuit to find Emily. But after the first few meetings, he stopped helping and wouldn't call the police. He expected the police to contact him with any new information. At one point, Matt even asked that Amy Thomas, Emily's sister, act as his spokesperson between himself and the police. Amy refused, and Matt became angry. Later, during her testimony at trial, Amy summarized the conversation, saying, In a menacing tone, he said, You need to think long and hard about whether you ever want to see your sister again. And I hung up and did not speak with him again. Matt requested that the Vanish podcast help him to try and find Emily, but the creator said his interviews had some weird moments. For example, Matt expressed that he was very nervous that what he said in his interviews would be used against him and reminded the podcast creator that they couldn't use his words without his express permission. The tone was oddly hostile, especially considering that Matt had been the one to reach out to Marissa. Some other moments in Matt's interviews are weird, like when he described Emily as a stern-looking but anatomically beautiful woman. But perhaps those moments are just Matt's socially awkward personality coming through. The rest of Matt's interviews with The Vanish Podcast were, for the most part, normal. He said that he was helping the search for Emily by creating missing persons posters and yard signs. He was focused on getting the word out, rather than assisting the police. However, Matt urged people with any information regarding Emily to call the police or himself. Matt also mentioned a Facebook group he made to find Emily, but in another strange situation, when the Vanish podcast tried to join the private Facebook group, Matt denied them. Emily's friends and family later told the Vanish podcast that they felt Matt was inauthentic during his interviews. Dawn, Emily's sister-in-law, said Matt described Emily like she was a thing. Dawn and others close to Emily suspected Matt had something to do with Emily's disappearance. Because of this, Matt threatened to sue Emily's family for defamation and harassing him through Facebook posts. Since this was late May of 2020, many of the investigative process was slowed due to the advance of COVID-19 and police having to work through a backlog of cases. However, the police were working diligently to locate Emily. They searched her condo, the cars, and gathered useful data from Matt and Emily's cell phones. They attempted to contact Matt, but he would not speak with them. Police also searched part of the wooded area near Matt and Emily's condo, but due to miscommunication, police never searched the portion of the woods that really mattered. On September 16, 2020, four months after she vanished, Emily's remains were discovered in the wooded area near her condo. Three foraging women had found Emily's body less than half a mile from her condo, just a few minutes' walk away, and called the police. Emily's partially decomposed remains were on the forest floor, and above her, a 20-inch USB cord was hanging from a honeysuckle tree branch. 
At first glance, it appeared that Emily had hung herself from the branch with the USB cord. Still, rumors ran wild. Was Emily's death a suicide? An accident? Murder? It was suspicious. Friends told the Vanish podcast that her death felt eerily similar to that of Joey's, who had used an extension cord to hang himself, also in a nearby wooded area. Many searches had been conducted in the days and weeks after Emily was reported missing, and when it was discovered that the police had not searched the wooded area thoroughly, the public was deeply upset. In a 2020 news conference held by the Westerville Chief of Police, Charles Chandler, he claimed they'd searched that exact area three times, but they hadn't. They came close once when police received an anonymous tip about a grave marker at which point the police searched the eastern portion of the wooded area, but they were in the wrong spot. The grave marker turned out to be a false flag, a small ceramic angel that was unrelated to Emily's disappearance or death. Emily's sister-in-law, Dawn, told the Vanish podcast that Emily's small stature made it difficult for the dogs to find her since the dogs searched by the smell of a person's body fat, and Emily didn't have much of that. After four months of exposure to the elements, Emily's body was unrecognizable. Forensic experts confirmed it was her body only via the use of DNA analysis and dental records. She was wearing black Old Navy leggings, a black spaghetti-strapped tank top, a white Old Navy long-sleeved shirt, and her Asics running shoes with an e-cigarette in her legging pocket. Her body was positioned so that her right hand was holding her right ankle, and her left arm was down and touching a black water bottle by her left leg. In the water bottle was a peach-colored liquid, which was tested and had 6% alcohol. Also near her left leg was an engagement ring and wedding band. Emily's body was so decomposed that the Ohio Skeletal Biology Research Lab worked together with the Delaware County Coroner's Office to determine a cause of death. They found that Emily's face and neck had bone fractures, four fractures to the hyoid bone, and a fracture to the nasal cavity, which they determined had happened during or after Emily's death. Based on this information, they concluded that Emily's death was caused by a homicide. They believed Emily had been manually strangled. Matt's previous wife, Lisa Peterson, told news reporters that on New Year's Day 2001, Matt had choked her. They'd been married for three months, and at the time, she was pregnant with their first son. Lisa clarified that this was the only time Matt had hurt her, and the two maintained contact after. Matt was arrested for this incident. As you might imagine, Matt was always a person of interest in Emily's missing persons case. He reported her missing. He was the last one to see her, and, of course, he was the husband. Even before Emily's body was found, Emily's family feared that Matt had something to do with her disappearance, 
and worried that Emily's potential murderer would receive all of Emily's money and property. On September 2, 2020, the Noble family attorney and Emily's sister Amy filed a lawsuit to remove Matt as Emily's power of attorney. When Emily's remains were discovered, Amy and the attorney dropped the lawsuit. They started a new lawsuit, challenging Matt's rights to Emily's money, property, and remains. This battle is still ongoing, with the next court date being held on December 9, 2022. On June 17, 2021, a year after Emily disappeared, 51-year-old Matthew Moore was arrested without incident a little bit after 9.30 a.m. He was charged with two counts of murder, one intentional and the other connected to felonious assault and taken into custody. During the arrest, Matt said that the officers made a mistake and when asked if he had killed Emily, Matt shook his head no. In a press conference following the arrest, the police chief of Westerville, Charles Chandler, said, Our hearts go out to Emily's family. We know this isn't over for them yet. Matt's trial began on August 15, 2022, and was held in Delaware County Common Pleas Court, with Stephen A. Wolliver as presiding judge. Court TV covered the trial, so over 60 hours of footage is available on YouTube if you'd like to see all of the proceedings. The trial took seven days in total. The defense's main argument was that Matt had no role in Emily's death, and Emily took her own life by hanging herself with a USB cord. But the prosecution felt differently. The prosecuting lawyer, Mark Sleeper, accused Matt of killing Emily sometime between May 24th and May 25th then staged her corpse in a tree so that it would look like a suicide and mislead investigators. Multiple experts, including a forensic anthropologist, a pathologist, and other officials from the Delaware County Coroner's Office, believe the cause of Emily's death to be a homicide. They agreed that a hanging would not cause the injuries Emily sustained on her neck, since these types of injuries were indicative of manual strangulation. Delaware County Coroner Dr. Mark Hickman said that the amount of trauma that would have occurred to cause these fractures would have to be inflicted by another person. Dr. William Smock, an expert in strangulation, also testified to support the prosecution. He said that since Emily was only 100 pounds, it was unlikely that her body weight would have caused her bones to break, which caused her death. Dr. Smock said, She was strangled manually then placed in a tree. Prosecuting lawyer Mark Sleeper also said that there was no reason for Emily to complete suicide. Emily was known to have overcome a great deal of adversity between the deaths of her friends with AIDS, her first husband, her dad, and her mom. Why would the death of her stepson trigger her suicide when she had survived other heartbreaking events? Sleeper continued, Terrible things, but what do you hear about that? that each time Emily Noble overcame that trauma and continued on to see the joy in life and the bright things in the world. She got through it every single time, every single time, until she married that man, and now suddenly she doesn't survive the trauma? Then Sleeper pointed out how Matt had not recovered from Joey's death. According to Sleeper, Matt was unemployed, sitting at home, getting drunk. The prosecution also argued that it was unlikely Emily completed suicide because she didn't demonstrate the behavior typical of somebody who was suicidal. 
She didn't leave notes, give anyone her valuables, or say goodbye. Emily's friends and family agreed with this assessment when they testified, saying that Emily hadn't mentioned suicide in conversation or texts. Sleeper also proposed that the timing of Emily's death was highly suspicious. Emily's birthday was May 24th, and her sister, Amy's birthday, was May 26th. So on May 25th, since the two women were briefly the same age, they had a tradition of calling each other to have a special annual conversation. Additionally, the prosecution showed that Matt's interaction with the police were suspicious. Matt referred to Emily in the past tense when he spoke to the police, for example saying, I loved Emily, rather than I love Emily, which the prosecution believes meant he knew she was dead. He also didn't display the traditional concerned spouse behavior when interacting with the police, and when he eventually called the police to report Emily missing, he hadn't yet searched the condo, as if he already knew Emily wasn't there. In their closing statement, the prosecution posited that Emily went for a walk in the woods and Matt went with her. They returned home, then Matt made a phone call. Finally, between 9 p.m. and midnight, Matt killed Emily and staged the crime scene. Upon hearing their explanation, Matt was visibly upset in the courtroom, throwing his arms up in disbelief. The defense lawyer was Diane Menashe. She claimed that Emily had experienced a series of tragedy that led her to taking her own life. Menashe tried to discredit one of the prosecution's forensic experts, since they weren't an expert in criminal investigations. Minishi provided the defense's own expert, Heather Garman, who was a forensic anthropologist. Garman said that the bones in the neck could be incredibly fragile, and that it was possible that Emily could have snapped them during a suicide attempt. The defense, in an attempt to add credence to this notion, stated Emily had a history of fragile bones, citing a broken ankle Emily once had. Additionally, the defense accused the police of bungling the investigation. They criticized the authorities for not taking photos of the ligatures around Emily's neck or managing to recover all of Emily's remains. Some hyoid bone and toes were missing, and Emily's molars, which were thought to have been taken when she was being identified, were actually left at the scene and had to be recovered in March of 2021. Minishi criticized the prosecution's explanation that Emily didn't act suicidal, providing the court with notes from Emily's psychologist. They showed that Emily had been struggling with depression following the rampant death in her family, including her first husband's death and her stepson's recent suicide. Minishi went on to say that mental health is very complicated, explaining that just because Emily didn't take the same actions others have when preparing for suicide, doesn't mean she didn't commit suicide. Minishi said, If mental health were that simple, we would live in a much different world. This is the thing about mental health. You don't see it coming. It's not that simple to say, they seem happy. The psychologist also confirmed that Emily never spoke as if Matt was abusing her. The defense also used text messages between Emily and Matt to show a lack of motive, since Matt sent her positive messages frequently. At one point in time, Matt even asked Emily to tell him if she wanted a divorce. He never said he hated Emily or wanted her dead. While the prosecution tried to paint Emily as the breadwinner in the household, the defense pointed out that Emily had only $96,000 in assets. Meanwhile, Matt had recently put over $400,000 into their joint bank account, 
because he had inherited money from his mother following her death. So, they argued, why would Matt kill Emily if he already had so much money? Why would he share the money with Emily if he planned on murdering her? A big point of contention when police found Emily's body was whether or not the honeysuckle tree limb could have held her body weight. Since four months had passed, Emily's body had decomposed and was lying on the ground, so could not provide an immediate answer. The defense brought in biomechanical engineer Dr. John Bolt, who conducted five tests simulating Emily's body with a crash dummy, the same type of branch and a USB cord. In all five tests, the branch did not fail, and neither did the USB cord, proving that it was possible that Emily's body could have hung from the branch. Finally, there was no evidence that linked Matt to the crime scene. When tested, Emily's water bottle, clothing, and the USB cord did not show Matt's DNA. While the defense was willing to accept that perhaps Emily died by nefarious means, there was no evidence indicating Matt was involved. During closing statements, the defense leaned heavily on the body cam footage of Matt calling the police to report a missing persons case. When he sees Celeste drive up, Matt appears to believe it might be Emily who is about to get out of the car. The defense argued he wouldn't have reacted that way if Matt already knew Emily was dead. Matt also immediately gave over evidence that could help find her, such as cell phones, laptops, personal items, hairbrush, shower cap, not the behavior of a man who was trying to hide something huge. The defense accused the prosecution's case of being total speculation. Matt was not the mastermind behind her death. The prosecution failed to meet the burden of proof. The case was an emotional roller coaster. A juror cried during closing remarks, and Matt cried during the trial, especially at the mention of Joey's suicide. On Friday, August 20th, 2022, after three hours of deliberation, Matthew Moore was declared not guilty of murdering his wife. Matt clasped his hands on the back of his bowed head upon hearing the verdict. Overwhelmed with emotions, he sobbed, repeatedly mouthing the words, Thank you. If you or someone you know is in danger of suicidal ideation or action, please consider calling the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. We're looking for a new tagline, so if you are interested in providing one, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com, and if you're selected, we will give you some free swag. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. We're active on Twitter at truecrime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash truecrimecaseswithlaney, and Instagram at truecrimecaseswithlaney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and of course, we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Andrea Marshbank. Content editing by Jesse Hawk. Produced by Neeks at We Talk of Dreams, who's the best in the business. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.